Welcome to the second podcast. Uh, hopefully you've listened to the first one. It'll make more sense that way. Uh, and, and you absolutely should, because it was genuinely a fantastic 25 minutes of discussion. So joined again by Glenn Hanna and, of course, Anna. And we left the last podcast because Anna was about to get into lots of patients she's managed. And I had to stop her, as I nearly <laughs> always need to. And so we were going to pick this one up, Glenn. And and uh, I mean, it's so good to hear about the manuscript. There's so many things we could talk all night about the things you're going to look at. But just tell us what the next step is in terms of, you know, the next sort of thoughts around a trial, you know, maybe what you've got planned, what you would love to do, but only in two or three minutes, because then I want to get into some really juicy topics. Great. So the plan, I'm really excited to say that Evan Lipson and I are really great colleagues. As I mentioned, he did the nivolumab, ipilimumab combo trial in non-melanoma skin, et cetera, including squame with tacrolimus at the same time that I was doing this mTOR trial with um, prednisone pulse for a similar population kidney transplant with advanced cutaneous squame. We both are getting ready to share our results, but we are aware of each other's data. We worked together to launch an alliance and CTCN trial um, in the United States, or we're working towards it. We've been vetting the protocol, the second protocol, which will lovingly be called Contract 2. Um, <laughs> and this trial will look very similar, but a little simpler and a little different. So we'll take patients, kidney transplant recipients, cutaneous squamous cell advanced unresectable, et cetera, and give them serolimus at levels, so just serolimus, with the pulse prednisone. But here's the kick. There is a randomization to single-agent semiplumab, which is what we did before, followed by, at first progression, the EGFR inhibitor cetuximab. And that's because there was a patient in my trial who rapidly progressed on the PD-1 inhibitor semiplumab, went back to his local doctor in Maine in the U.S., got cetuximab and went into a durable CR for 10 months. So there's, and as many of you know, there's a nice synergism between the antigen-dependent cellular cytotoxicity that's triggered by EGFR binding and the antibody with IO stimulation, and that's been shown in a number of cancers. So we're giving semiplumab first progression, the option of cetux, and in the other arm, one-to-one, -one, they get the combo out the gate. So they get cetuximab plus semiplumab together. So that'll be contract two. And right now we're in the writing phase of the um, approval and sort of the letter of intent. It'll take a while through the sort of ET, the um, rare tumor network and the NCTCN, but probably within a year or so that trial will be formulated and vetted and hopefully open across many centers, transplant centers within the U.S. to make take the step, the next step um, in the field. Wow. So it's a warm evening and I've got goosebumps listening to that trial. Anna, just initial thoughts when you hear that study design? Oh, yeah, it's really exciting. It sounds it sounds really good. And it's just really nice to have designs that are based on sort of basic pharmacological rationale and looking for that synergistic sort of a sort of immunomodulatory processes. So it's really, really, really exciting. And I think particularly in this patient group who've had so few treatment options for so long, actually understanding their sort of their underlying biology and the biology of their tumours, I think is really, really exciting. So it's it's fab and, and sort of congratulations for taking it this far and really looking forward to the next step. It's yeah, I'm, re it's, I'm very excited. I am also very excited on a really hot night in London. <laughs> So before we transition into real life, I just want to ask one question um, that's been going through my mind since we started. 
And we talked about the fact that cutaneous squame uh, more likely to have organ transplants because there's a risk factor for developing cutaneous squame. Is there any other reason? Is there anything special about semiplumab? Because there's there's the case series, which is 30 patients, and again, decent response rates, around 50% in CLL, I think rheumatoid, HIV, transplants, and that was semiplumab. Is there something about semiplumab, or is it is it the cutaneous squame that's the, the thing here? Glenn, I'd be keen for your thoughts. Yeah, so I would say that, um, and sorry, there's a printer in the background, but I would say that, yes, I think that um, my sense is that there might be a difference between PD-1 and uh, anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1, which in my defense has been something we've observed in the head and neck squamous cell community. But I don't, uh, you know, despite uh, Regeneron's potential answer, I don't necessarily think that it's a PD-1 specific drug effect. I think if we had done the trial with nivolumab or Opdivo or Keytruda, pembrolizumab, et cetera, et cetera, we might get probably get similar results. You know, I, I have to admit they sort of mechanistically seem to work similar. Where there is some discrepancy is what would a PDL1 inhibitor do in this situation, right? Because you get that selected PDL1 inhibition and PDL2 is unchecked. And so I, I think that we don't know, but I would be, you know, I wouldn't blink if there was an alternative PD1 considered. Okay. Anna, any thoughts? So it, it, it's interesting. So I don't know if it's just to do with patient population and the fact that the outside of the transplant community, the squamous cell population tends to be a little bit a little bit older. And we know that these drugs are well tolerated in the slightly older population. So it could be that and that alone. Um, and it could also be that we only treat a small number. So I've treated probably one of the highest numbers in the UK and I've treated about 60 people with semiplumab in the advanced setting. Um, so it's not massive numbers. So that might be why it seems better tolerated. But certainly it does seem better tolerated than some of the other people ones, which I can't really explain from the biology, as Glenn was suggesting. It'd be very interesting to see if, it's, if it gets to be setting more indications in, in bigger populations, whether we do see a genuine difference. Um, but certainly it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. But I'm very comfortable using semiplumab in these patients. Um, I find it very well tolerated and patients, generally speaking, um, go through treatment really well, which I think is a really interesting uh, sort of anecdotal finding. Right. Yeah, okay. So that, yeah. So Glenn, that does bring me to the question I wanted to ask, which is, that's my perception too, Anna. The patients seem to tolerate it really, really well. Two questions. One, what was the other toxicities like, Glenn, in this study? And, and Anna, how does that, you know, do you get a genuine feeling that these immunosuppressed patients don't get as much toxicity? So let's take that one on. Uh, Glenn, thoughts? I think you're right. I mean, granted, it's 12 patients, the experience, but that is a fair number for this group. You know, I would agree that, you know, maybe it's the prednisone, but I can tell you just from, you know, having been close to the data recently, at least in the 12, I think there was only one documented attributable grade three uh, immune-related adverse event, which, sorry, the CTCAE grading. Um, so, you know, moderately severe requiring hydration, and this was a colitis or inflammatory bowel issue um, and required steroids and sort of pause and 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 uh, the patient was actually able to to continue treatment eventually. But I think you're right. You know the sort of general itises that we are worried about. You know and then so of course the more aggressive uh, end organ issues like pneumonitis. Um, we definitely didn't see any of that. We saw less. I would say skin toxicity. You know itching and and uh, dermatitis was a little less and certainly less. LFT abnormalities than I'm used to seeing in a, a sort of general, let's say, head and neck 
pembrolizumab population. So that may very well be from the mTOR inhibitor plus or minus the prednisone. So I, I would agree with you. And I, to your point, I'm not sure it's a simiplumab issue. I think it may be more the patients and the prednisone and mTOR use in synchrony. Anna, do you think it's the prednisone or the immune suppression, or do you think it's something to do with the biology of those patients with cutaneous squame and their their overall generalized immune suppression, not the immune suppression that we're doing to them? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it could be any of those things. I think that's why some of the flow work that, that Glenn and his colleagues have got, have got planned would be really interesting to look at the different activated populations and whether that changes over time. Um, I certainly think it is it is a combinatorial effect. I don't think it's just drug related. I think the prednisolone, it's, it's difficult to know and, and because the doses are pulsed so high for a very short period of time, it feels unlikely that that alone would be enough, although obviously it, it, it probably just contribute to some degree. I think we know that squamous cell carcinomas are very immunogenic anyway. We know that they they kind of have that tick box for T-cell recognition. Um, and there is some theory and also some evolving data as we're trying to get combinatorial regimes where you get um, better trafficking of T-cells into the into the tumor microenvironment and thus less likely to be sort of ubiquitously causing toxicity into other tissue types, that actually the, the true immunogenicity of, of squamous cell carcinoma in this setting may be that actually you get a lot of T-cell trafficking into, into where you want it to be and maybe less potential toxicity and also whether that t-cell cross recognition cross antigen recognition is less effective in patients that have got immunomodulation on board and have got um sort of abrogated immune systems already all of those things together probably explain it um but it is certainly interesting and i think a, a really important area for us to try and understand more partly so then we can start potentially modifying those things it more in a more granular way because at the moment we are still quite a we've got a quite a sort of belt and braces approach you know we're using strong immunosuppression we're, we're now rationalizing that and using protocols um treatment which makes sense and actually using immunosuppression that makes sense that's taken us one step further into that question i think we've got more to do in terms of understanding on an individual basis what's going on in there at, the, at their immune cell level so Glenn, let's now move away from cutaneous squame in the last 10 minutes. So the next patient you see, let's say with head and neck or Anna, that you see with melanoma that's got a, a kidney transplant in situ, what are you going to do with their immune suppression? So Glenn, accepting that you've probably got a little bit more room for doing what it is that you want to do, and Anna and I may be a little bit more restricted, although we'll discuss that. What are you going to do with your next patient outside of a trial? I'm going to use this regimen. I mean, the reality is we're never going to have a outside of contract two, which will take a number of years if it does execute and potentially whatever happens in Europe. There's no question that right now this is the best we have from a prospective, albeit small trial. Um, I think the signal and the need is compelling enough that I would definitely move the patient to an mTOR inhibitor, probably serolimus. I would use the pulse prednisone strategy. I would to be totally honest, probably be fine using pembrolizumab if it because it's on label for head and neck as a monotherapy, um, if that were the appropriate drug um, for the patient and just use the same recapitulate the immunosuppression regimen with each cycle. I would feel very comfortable with that in the setting of a kidney transplant recipient. Right. Anna, same question. So I think Glenn's beautifully made that point about the fact that we are specifically talking about 
kidney transplant patients so obviously we will have other transplant patients so my next transplant patient is actually lung transplant patient coming to see me next week so you know we will have other groups um that this isn't necessarily relevant for but for me it's a two-step one is definitely the previously when I've had the conversation with my nephrology colleagues about change from TAC to serolimus I've been like well there's a bit of data but I'm not so you know I'm, I'm not sure it makes that much difference and then obviously we've had these two now two um uh, studies that actually probably make me go yes we should change them ideally actually the conversation I will now be having exactly as as Glenn said is actually this is prospective data and actually 12 patients is probably as many I probably have seen about 12 in the last year so that's probably my annual transplant cohort which seemed like a reasonable enough number to start having a conversation about so I think actually I would certainly go and have a conversation about whether we should be doing this I suspect our nephrology colleagues will will feel the prednisolone doses around the pulse will be slightly out of their comfort zone because they're normally sitting around the 5-10 milligram uh, setting so I think I can't wait for this paper to come out because then I've got some data at my hands to be able to go actually go and read about it but I'll certainly be having that conversation but certainly the step to changing from TAC to serolimus is something I'll definitely be doing a bit more active now. Okay, final question on that, Anna, before we get into other organs. Let's say tomorrow that patient pitches up in your new patient clinic and they're on tacrolimus and they're on 10 of pred. What are you, how long, and you may not know the answer, but let's say you're in that, that clinic, how long are you, let's say you do do the switch to serolimus, do you have the conversation, how long are you going to want them on serolimus before you kick off with IO? Have you, you know, is it till you get the right level? I, I don't, I just don't know. Yeah, so I think you want to take into consideration the level and the and and the half life to plateau. So so if we if we use think about this for other drugs, we know for example that because mycophenolate mofetil only works on new T cells, we need to leave it at least five to seven days to get to a steady state plateau where we know we're going to get a benefit. Tacrolimus that that duration of onset is around two to three days as long as you're within within um the the relevant uh, level. So similarly with serolimus, we, we need to make sure we understand how long it needs to be um, at at um, appropriate level before but I think I suspect from memory and I haven't looked at the serolimus sort of onset for a little while but again it's probably in the region of a few days so to be honest I would be talking about transitioning them getting them within level and making sure they're, they're constantly and happily within a level for at least a week before thinking about um, starting uh, our immunotherapy but I would absolutely have that conversation with with my transplant colleagues as as Glenn has alluded to earlier on but I do think it's it wouldn't be a case of starting taking stopping TAC starting serolimus and starting the next day so I do think there are some patients, not all of whom you're going to think that's suitable for immunotherapy anyway, but if there is an urgent need to start immunotherapy, it's a difficult one to, to see actually, have, you know, how do you get that timing right? But I think getting the timing right here and making sure they're within range and that you know what the range is meant to be is really important because, you know, it's all very well starting immunotherapy, but actually if you've got a high risk of transplant rejection, you'll run into trouble really quickly. Um, I suppose the other thing that we haven't really explored, it would be good to get thoughts on is, you know, there are some kidney transplant um, patients who have got really fairly normal, very acceptable trans uh, kidney function. There are others that look like they are walking towards having some degree of um, of rejection and their kidney transplant isn't functioning as well. Did you did you stratify for them in the trial or did you have did you have particular requirements to mean that you weren't necessarily selecting that group who were potentially at high risk of or already starting to some degree re reject their transplant? So I just wanted to make the point that exactly as you thought through, we waited about se seven days for most patients who are switching to allow the level to stabilize, also to monitor any toxicity that was happening from 
the drug. And that, that's important because when you read the paper, there was actually a patient who switched to an mTOR inhibitor, was maintained on an angiotensin um, converting enzyme inhibitor and had angioedema. And actually that was very serious. And the patient never ultimately able to be was able to be assessed because of that reaction. So we make a note that that's a word of caution. Another reason why we, we've seen less of that was serolimus. So another reason why we included that in the uh, follow-up trial. But in terms of um, kidney function, that's a really good point. We actually were pretty strict in the beginning about kidney function, but made a pretty uniform decision early on to be more flexible with renal function. We allowed patients with an estimated GFR of greater than or equal to 30, actually, mLs per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Um, if they're, and with creatinine levels who are above normal, if um, they, by the CKD epi equation, we also require that they have a urine protein spot creatinine ratio less than 0.5 on their screening labs. But that's not cherry picking, I would argue. I mean, that means we allowed some proteinuria, probably one plus on a dipstick, and we allowed people with GFRs by strict equations from 30 to 50. So we were pretty liberal and, and not every graft was perfectly functioning. One nice thing we do in the paper, I graph out all of the creatinine values across the entire range because there were some bumps, right? People are not in rejection, but we had a couple patients who had um, UTIs and their creatinine bumps. They had a culture positive UTI. We treated them. They went down. One woman had diarrhea, so she had to be hydrated and her BUN and her creatinine went up. So we nicely plot out in a supplemental figure the creatinine range across the trial. I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I tend to do with my transplant patients is I will I monitor them much more closely and it depends on the, what, what organ I'm, I, they've transplanted, depends on what I'm monitoring. But um, certainly we'll do I do weekly bloods on them to start with in that initial when they're in that transplant rejection high risk phase. Um, and actually, we do see variants around the baseline. I think it's really important to not jump into worrying about it too quickly, but keeping a close eye to see if there's consistent rises. But we certainly do see that variability over time. And as you say, things like UTIs and, uh, you know, any reason that, you know, too much sun and not enough fluid, you know, they can they can get variability around it. So um, they tend to they tend to have that variability, but it doesn't necessarily need acting on, which I think has been quite an interesting learning point for me managing these patients. Um, but I find that monitoring them relatively closely actually I think has been really fundamental in me not seeing very much rejection because we're picking up in it and monitoring it early and ingesting things which has been quite interesting and um, so certainly one of the roles of my immunotherapy team is I have a transplant group and they they have a sort of a, a monitoring process which they follow which seems to work whether I'm over monitoring them it's possible and maybe we could ease back but it certainly seems to be a, a way of, of managing the cohort relatively effectively. Yeah, we did weekly. We required weekly urine and chemistries for the first, I think, 12 weeks of therapy as exactly as you suggested. So, so Glenn, just a couple of questions and then I want to get into other organs in a final five minutes. Those patients who had diarrhea or UTI, did you change their immunosuppression at all? Did you did you lose your nerve with any of those patients or did they stay on the same regime? I would say my transplant nephrologist knew the goal and knew what we were dealing with and was very experienced. So she would derive drive that decision. But in if in my recollection, most patients, they might hold a day or two for certain reasons, but no, we didn't end up modifying the dose. There would only be dose adjustments for level issues or changes in meds, but not for those acute events, no. Okay, great. Anna, you mentioned earlier that 
for your transplant patients in general now, or was it kidney, but so I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you're tending not to change the immunosuppression that they're on if they're stable? Is Was that just a renal thing? It, let's leave lung and heart, because we'll come back to that in a second. But the kind of kidney liver ballpark, is that what you're doing as a rule? It is what I'm doing as a rule, but largely because until now, really, we haven't had anything that's better. And so it was very much sort of licking your finger and putting it up in the wind and going, oh, well, we think we should reduce it down and we'll do this. And and I I, I really questioned in a, you know, in a very you know, collaborative, I, just to understand sense, you know, how do we get to the where the lowest dose that's effective is? Well, if then if they if, if they can be on a lower dose, why aren't they already on that? So I think, you know, actually, we were sort of we were, we were sort of risking comfort from a from a, a transplant perspective perspective just because logically that would make their immunotherapy work better we didn't have the data or the evidence around it so I have very much like I do with my autoimmune patients now I leave them on what they are on and then monitor things and and then and that and that seems to be working but again it's one of those where it's difficult to know whether we could do it better and and obviously an evidence-based regime is is always better when we can when we can properly evaluate whether it's it's helpful or not um so i think this is this is taking it one step further but certainly i'm not i'm not modifying anything at the moment although as i said probably going forward i will talk about a tactosterolimus switch okay brilliant glenn any thoughts on that um so the question around the the in my practically in my in patients, your real life practice yeah it, it, I, I mean i i think i'm biased but i would i would petition ever i would make an argument to a transplant nephrologist and share my data but for renal transplants i'm pretty firm that you would use mTOR inhibitor um, and luckily we can we can generally access them here so okay great and i think one of the things that greg was alluding to, uh, was alluding to earlier was about the fact that um the interactions of these drugs so we know that tacrolimus particularly is a pretty highly interactive drug everolimus is more than sirolimus interestingly which which is also is quite nice that sirolimus seems to be the the, the sort of the preferred agent um, but they are but tacrolimus is quite a complicated drug in our patient group when they've got other things going on we need to use antibiotics we need to use all sorts of other drugs at certain points in their treatment algorithm um so actually it, it it's quite nice to think about being able to not not use a calcineurin inhibitor because they're such a a, a toxic in their own right uh, therapy fine as long as appropriately monitored absolutely can manage them but it it's not a, they're, they're not the nicest therapeutics to manage particularly if we're using them in more and more patients so actually moving to an mTOR actually feels um, quite a good move pharmacologically as well Okay, and a final two minutes so thinking about your lung and your heart transplant patients yeah what how are you approaching them so if this happens to glenn and i tomorrow um other than calling you what are we going to do <laughs> i mean you can always call me you know that um so it's been it's, this has been a, such an interesting uh group to try and work through what to do with them because it's hard because you don't know whether you should be saying this is a this is a contraindication and we're not going there but actually certainly the patients that i've treated have had very significant metastatic disease um, and with with real um, really quite rapid progression and so their treatment options are limited their life expectancy is limited in the absence of treatment and so it's taken a lot of counselling and a lot of conversation. The key to this is actually making sure that I think you have the conversation with the patient, their transplant team and and anybody else. So, for example, with my heart transplant patient, I also have a long he's he's a, a regular attendance in terms of his case at our cardio-oncology MDT. So I have my local cardio-oncology MDT, his heart transplant team, um, uh, which is a super regional service and him. And I had at least two conversations with him about the fact that we were risking his what seemed to be very, very effective heart transplant. 
but he had got metastatic melanoma that he was almost certainly going to die with a prognosis of, of less than a year if we didn't give treatment. Um, and then it was a case of how do we monitor him? So he has um, he started with two weekly echoes. He now has monthly echoes. We started with monitoring his pro-BMP and his troponin weekly. And we now monitor it every three weeks in line with his treatment, uh, every two weeks and now every four weeks. And I also looked at the, the IO regime I was giving him. So I give my transplant patients the shorter um, pathology regime. So I give, so for example, if I'm giving the volume, I will give it two weekly rather than four weekly. And if I'm giving pembrolism, I will give it three weekly rather than six weekly. Um, and as I say, with, with robust monitoring and that MDT approach, um, so far things are good. And similarly with our lung transplant patients, um, they, they normally, because the transplant world has moved ahead massively, they're really good at self-monitoring themselves. So, so my lung transplant patients, for example, do um, bedside um, spirometry and function lung function tests, and they regularly monitor them. And one of the patients I'm looking after at the moment has an app that it feeds into that he then sends to me. So I can actually do weekly spirometry to see if he's got reduction in his lung function and we monitor his symptoms. And if he's developing any problems, then we, we then we, we we review for any evidence of, of rejection um, with his team. So it's about close monitoring, but the, the transplant community are phenomenally good at monitoring the transplants anyway. So I think it's about us as oncologists tying into that and actually saying, we're giving this drug, can we, can we monitor them in a bit with a, with a slightly different um, sort of lens on it, but the same monitoring. Um, and those those things actually have been really effective. And like I say, I've had variable responses, but um, but I haven't yet had anybody that's lost their transplant. Perfect. So look, in the interest of time, and because Glenn has a patient waiting, unlike a beer that's waiting for us, um, <laughs> I'm going to bring this to a close. Anna, we will pick up those two patients, I think, on a separate podcast. Glenn, I, I can't say thank you enough. It's been great having you on the podcast. and uh, We'd love to have you back to talk about your follow-up study in due course. That sounds great. It was wonderful to connect, and thank you for the opportunity to share the data. Great. All right. So have, a, have a good day, Anna. I will see you shortly for a drink. I look forward Take to care. Okay. Take Bye care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.